It's that time of the year when it's traditional to look back on where our journey has led us. For those tasked with keeping their eyes and fingers on the pulse of the world of media relations, the journey has many lanes. I'm Shelley Dankoff, your host for Health Accelerated, brought to you by OSF Healthcare. On today's episode, we're taking a look back at some of the stories from the OSF newsroom that you might have missed. OSF Healthcare has managed its own newsroom since 2016. There are six of us on the media relations team who work to share all of the new and exciting things going on at OSF Healthcare, while at the same time keeping up with the trending topics of vital interest to members of the media as well as our patients. We're going to chat with members of the team and take a look at some of the innovative, exciting, and sometimes just unusual trends we're seeing. Media Relations Coordinator Colleen Reynolds joins me now. Okay, so you cover one of the coolest areas for our ministry. You oversee media coverage and pitching stories and that type of stuff for innovation, our digital health initiatives. There's a lot of cool stuff that comes out of that world, isn't there? There certainly is. And before I came to work at OSF, I had no idea the extent of the groundbreaking research we're doing, all of the academic partners, the startup community that we are a huge part of, not only in Peoria, but in Chicago and really throughout the Midwest in many ways. So yeah, what a surprise that this what I thought of as a small or medium-sized healthcare system in, you know, based in Peoria, Illinois, would be involved in so much and in really transforming healthcare in a way that could not only have implications outside of our state, but outside of our country. Okay, one of the topics that we want to talk about today, diabetes. Diabetes affects so many people. And there's a story on the OSF newsroom I noticed that you did this year highlighting a new service that we're expanding in our primary care offices, which is which is also really cool because a lot of people, their first entry and exposure is through their primary care physicians. And then also a few special medical offices to patients with diabetes. So tell us a little bit of background on that story and why it was so important to feature that. Well, first of all, for me, just personally, I was very interested in this because I'm a type 2 diabetic. And what I learned in the course of doing this story was kind of surprising. You know, I was one of those patients that when I was diagnosed, I did everything they told me to do. And part of that was getting regular dilated eye exams to make sure that, you know, my sugar levels were not impacting the vessels of my eyes. And, you know, because what people might not know is There's something called diabetic retinopathy, and it is the number one cause of blindness for adults in the United States. And even in the course of my uh, career here at OSF, I've interviewed a patient who went blind from diabetes. So it's a very serious, you know, uh, complication. And if your diabetes isn't managed well, it can have a big impact. So We found across our ministry, we have about 66,000 people with diabetes who we treat. And a 
very significant majority of them were not getting their dilated eye exams. You know, it should be every year, but at least every two years. And they just weren't doing it. And, you know, for a variety of reasons. And, of course, the pandemic probably didn't didn't help. This was a huge problem. Our clinical leaders turned to our OSF Innovation Division and said, what can we do to make this more accessible, easier and convenient for our patients so they'll get these exams and it can be part of how we manage their diabetes? And a very dedicated team of uh, performance improvement specialists got at it, started doing the research, and they found out that the FDA just cleared, which is their language for approved, uh, a new medical device or equipment that uses artificial intelligence and can basically diagnose your risk of diabetic retinopathy and something called macular edema. That's sort of where the vessels leak into the macula and can actually start causing blurry vision. And it can diagnose that in minutes. Is this just like an exam? If I go to my eye doctor and get it done, is it that type of an exam where you're in the office there? It is a lot like a regular vision exam. For diabetics, they usually get a dilated, you know, exam. So, you know, they put something in your eye and they dilate the pupil. For this particular exam that is from an Iowa-based startup company called Digital Diagnostics, in most cases, you don't even need to have your eyes dilated. You basically sit down, put your head against, you know, the, the little platform, and then you look through two little lenses And a camera takes pictures of the back of your eye so it can see the retina and it can see the vessels that lead to it. And based on that artificial intelligence, you know, that, you know, millions and millions and millions of photos that it's analyzing against, it can say positive risk, negative risk. What happens if I get that positive for either retinopathy or the macular edema? In almost all cases, it will be sent to you. The patient will be sent to an ophthalmologist. If they've never seen one, you know, we have a referral sheet and we let them decide based on their experience or, you know, if they want to do their own research, we basically say, here you go. If you want to take some time to decide who, let us know and we'll, we'll do the formal referral process. And so then the ophthalmologist will take a look and say, you know, this isn't that bad. And if you can get your diabetes under control, maybe changing your medication, maybe exercising more, you know, maybe eating better, let's try that first without any intervention. And why don't you come back and see me, work with your endocrinologist or your primary care doctor, and why don't you come back to see me in, you know, how many X number of months. Otherwise, They can also, there are treatments, you know, they can use lasers and other things that I'm not even aware of. But there are ways to treat it and intervene. But the real key is you have to get it early. You don't want it to be so far where there's really not a lot they can do. Right. And 
Dr. Mark Meeker is our Vice President of Community Medicine for OSF Healthcare, kind of taking the physician lead on this and getting this project going and coming up with a solution for the primary care offices. And he also agrees that early detection is absolutely key for this. The ophthalmologists have tremendous technologies to treat diabetic retinopathy now with lasers and whatnot, but there's nothing as good as prevention. And the way you prevent it is to tightly control the diabetes to begin with. So as soon as we see those retinopathy changes, if we can really get the attention of the patient to really pay attention to their sugar control, we can decrease that progression through prevention, not just through treatment. Okay, I know we piloted this exam in eight primary care offices. So what did we find out from that pilot? Well, initially, I think we were a little surprised that so many came up with being at risk for diabetic retinopathy. So actually to date, as of October 31st, this is the data, we have completed 358 exams and about 72 individuals were determined to be at risk. I understand we also received a grant to help us expand this program even further. I think this is really exciting because, you know, we invested in this equipment We did this pilot. We were very impressed with the results, and we really did want to move forward. But, you know, it's expensive. Medical equipment is expensive. And so we worked with Digital Diagnostics, and they helped us apply for a grant, and we received it one million dollars. That's awesome. And so that is going to allow us to expand this from eight to a total of 32 locations. Wow. Well, Colleen, thanks for sharing this cool story about our new vision. Yeah, that pun was completely intended (laughs) for our patients who have diabetes. Thanks, Shelley. I was happy to share that great story. Paul Arco is another member of the media relations team who supports a number of areas of the ministry. And one of the areas that I know you have spent time on over the course of this past year are our cancer and our oncology stories. Those have a very personal reason for you, don't they? Absolutely, Shelley. You know, there's 18 million cancer survivors in the United States, and that's up from 3 million in 1971. And in or by the year 2040, that number is expected to rise to 26 million, and that's thanks to medical advances. And I am one of those members of the, that statistic. In 2008, I'll give you the short version of this, but I thought I had a pulled muscle in my side, went to the doctor, he thought it was a kidney stone. Then I noticed a small hard lump in my right testicle. More investigation was needed. And as it turns out, I had stage two testicular cancer. So I'll never forget that call. My doctor called me at work on the afternoon of January 24th, 2008. My doctor had never called me personally. So when I heard his voice, I knew it was bad news. And uh, he gave me the the news that it was testicular cancer. And you were young, you were young. I was 40, yes. In some respects, testicular cancer, I was old because they say typically it happens in in younger men, teens to maybe their 20s and 30s. Although my urologist uh, did have a patient in his 70s with testicular cancer. So it it really is across the board. But yes, 
Um, you know, I was 40 at the time and I'll never remember or I'll never forget going to um, my first chemo appointment and looking around the waiting room at all these people that were considerably older than me. And I kept saying to my wife, what am I doing here? I, I don't I don't belong here. Right. And so that's why it's important to I mean, we keep talking about get those screenings, get checked out. And we've seen the statistics over the course of the pandemic. You know, for a while there, people had to put off the screenings. You couldn't go into a healthcare facility. Well, that, that's, you know, gone by the wayside. So, but now we're having to encourage people, but we're starting to see some of those cancers rearing their ugly heads because people haven't gotten those screenings. So we can't stress enough how important it is, not only for self-exams, but going to those providers to keep an eye on things, can we? Well, absolutely, and I and you you talked about self-exam, and I I can't stress that enough, because you know we talk about self-exam with women all the time, but I feel like sometimes that we don't talk about this with men, and you know, did it save my life? Yeah, it probably did, and my lump was so small that I guarantee most men would have ignored it, and they just would have put it off, and I've always been vigilant about that, and in this case, it paid off. Well, and most men don't think it's going to happen to them. And so they're they're the worst at their own health care, I think, sometimes anyway. So I do think, you know, yes, women need to be doing all of it, but men as much, if not more so, really need to hone in on it and get it taken care of. But once you're now that cancer survivor, and cancer is a part of your life, it never goes away, does it? No, it, it doesn't go away. I mean, there are days that you feel better about it than others, but um, it, at least for me, I mean, it always is in the back of my mind. You know, any pain that I might wake up with that I didn't have the night before, there are little reminders all the time that kind of bring you back into that place. But, you know, the fear of reoccurrence is real. And, you know, I am 12, 13 years out, but it's never far from my mind. And, um, you know, you have to do little things to help yourself sometimes get through tough days, tough times, or those reminders that bring it all back again. But that's why in your story, talking about, you know, the cancer survivors and life after cancer, you that's why you took particular interest in this story, right? Yeah, absolutely. And um, Jill Denno, who's one of our OSF oncology nurse navigators, you know, I talked to her about that. Not only is she one of our nurse navigators, she's a breast cancer survivor herself. So she can really relate to what her patients go through. And I talked to her about that. And she really stressed about the importance of how cancer does become a part of your life and the importance of supporting other survivors as well. I don't think that anyone that's been through cancer will ever spend another minute or day of their life not thinking about cancer. It becomes um, very much a part of you no matter what and so it's always there and me personally I haven't minded um, offering those people support that that needed it that had questions that needed um, help to just kind of sort through what's next and how do I tackle this mountain. So we know the importance of support groups during cancer treatment. Many people will tell you they are vital, others who are going through what you're going through. But why are they still so important post-treatment? Well, Shelley, you know, you hear the term the new normal, and I hated that term, by the way, but but it but really is, it's true. There is a new normal. Your life is never the same again. And, you know, you don't see your cancer team as often as you used to. Um, when your treatment is done, some people feel like they're no longer fighting cancer. 
you know, the worry can set in. You might feel lost um, without that support that you once had. And that's that's what I felt like, too, because as much as you don't like going to the hospital or seeing your doctors, or your appointments, there is a safety net or comfort in being in that environment. Well, now, you know, they ring the bell. You're done with your treatments. Well, you go on your merry way. Well, it's not that easy. I mean, you're still at home now trying to cope with what has happened and and really trying to fit in that new normal. So, you know, there's all these emotions that, that come flooding back, sadness, anger, fear. Uh, you go back to your role in your family, but it might not be as easy or the same as it once was. Um, you don't feel well. Uh, I had my oncologist say, you know, Paul, there's collateral damage that comes along with fighting cancer. And it's true. Um, you have fatigue, you have neuropathy in your hands and feet. Uh, maybe, you know, you're trying to grow your hair back. I mean, you are not the same person you were before you began fighting cancer. And that's where support groups really come in. Well, and Jill Dino, when you talk to her, talks about it even helps you uncover some emotions that you didn't know you had bottled up and boxed up, did you? Right. Um, and, and that has proven to be true. When I um, did my support group, I, I actually helped start a support group for men because we go back to that conversation. Men don't talk about their feelings. And we decided here that we were going to start a support group, hoping that we would get three, four or five men to come. We had sometimes up to 20 to 25 men who came to our support group because they really found that they needed this experience. They needed to connect with other men who could relate to what they were going through. And uh, it was a support group that lasted for many years. And um, whether you are recently diagnosed or a 20-year survivor, there was something in that support group that could help every man in that room. I feel like it's important for newly diagnosed patients to share those emotions with people that have already been through their journey. Um, because for me personally, it's actually kind of uncovered a lot of emotions that I just kind of boxed up and, and put away and didn't deal with. So I think it's important. Um, I think everybody brings valuable um, aspects to a support group, whether brand new diagnosis or 20 year survivor. So. Obviously, over the course of covering, and I know you've covered a number of um, cancer stories for us, what are some of the other tips, helpful tips that you found for people ready to move on or progress along their cancer journey? Yeah, Shelley, there's a lot of things that you can do, you know, once you're past your cancer treatments and, and ready to reenter your life, so to speak. But um, you know, stay busy as much as you can, whether you're returning to work or if you're retired, maybe you're looking for new hobbies. Exercise is so important, um, whether it's for your physical health or for your mental health. Um, get out and even if you can only walk to your mailbox or walk around the block or if you can go back to the the, the gym and exercise again, take your time, but, but exercise is so important. Re-enter your social circles and if you don't have them, find new social circles. It's so important to be around other people and to be around positive people. Um, don't shy away from your experience. You know, write about it if you if that makes you feel better. Speak about it. I talked to many different church groups, athletic teams, other cancer survivors, but I, I wanted to share my story. And it helps not only you, but it helps them to learn from your experience. 
um, stay positive. And that's the most important thing. I mean, because you are going to have good days and bad days, but try to stay positive. Uh, you know, do something that makes you feel good that day. And then the, the other important thing, and this is what Jill Deno talks about in our interview, is celebrate your milestones, whether it's the year you were diagnosed or the years that you're now cancer free. Some people want to shy away from it. She says embrace those milestones. It's a huge part of where we got to here today. Well, Paul, I appreciate you sharing your journey because those those personal stories are the ones that resonate, that a person will say, well, I'm just like him. I'm a guy and I need to do that. So maybe I'm, it, I'm hopeful that if somebody just hearing your story and hearing Jill talk about the importance of some of these things, you know, if it can change one or two or save a life, I think it's been a pretty good day, right? Absolutely. Shelly, I'll leave you with one story. I wrote a four-part series in the newspaper about my cancer journey. I had a guy come up to me at work that one day. He said, I haven't been to the doctor in 10 years, but I read your story and I made a doctor's appointment. And that's why we share the experiences that we have. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Shelly. Media Relations Coordinator Libby Allison joins us now. You know, first of all, when you look at the stories that you have covered over the course of the past year for the OSF Newsroom, what have been those ones that really draw you in? What gets your attention that you know is is going to catch fire out in the public that people are really wanting to hear about? I think that it could be a wide variety of things. You know, it's it's some of the innovative things that our people are doing at OSF that really make an impact in how people, you know, receive their health care. Some of those heartwarming stories, like some of the outreach things that we do, bringing meals to seniors, things like that, and getting the community involved, but also those hot topics. When you're reading through, you know, what's in the news today? Oh, RSV has been a huge, huge deal. So let's talk to some of our providers, like what they're seeing and really what parents should look out for. Like any of those really, I think, have such a broad interest to a lot of our audience. Yeah, there's been no lack of trending topics this year. That is for sure. One of the things that always seems to get a lot of attention, heart, our heart health, heart care. You have been the primary lead from the media relations team on, you know, heart related issues, our cardiovascular institute. And one of those has been TAVR. It is a procedure we have been offering for a decade Mm -hmm. at OSF Healthcare. So for people who are not aware, tell us what TAVR is. Okay. Well, TAVR, first of all, is an acronym, and that stands for Transcatheter Aortic Valve Replacement. So TAVR. It's a big mouthful. So let's TAVR. Let's call it TAVR. (laughs) Let's call it TAVR. So TAVR is basically people suffering from aortic stenosis, which is the narrowing of the aortic valve opening. You know, it can impact their lives. You know, they're they're always short of breath. You know, going from a chair to the refrigerator across the room would be the same as us going for a three-mile run. I mean, it's it's tiring. It's really something that impacts their quality of life. And that's where TAVR comes in. Because what TAVR is, is it, they use a catheter to actually go through a vein in someone's leg, usually, sometimes through the neck, but usually through the leg. And they actually replace someone's aortic valve using an attachment on that catheter. And so these are patients that are getting a new valve from just a very minimally invasive surgery. And these are people, you know, in the old days, we would have had to cut somebody open. You would have had to bust the sternum. You would have had to do the whole nine yards. And then the recovery of that 
was very long and very labored and very involved. So patients who might not qualify to have the full bore open heart surgery who are higher risk actually can now have TAVR, can't they? Exactly. And that's really who it came out for in the first place. It was 11 years ago, November of 22, that TAVR was actually approved by the FDA and OSF jumped on it. December 17th of 2022 is our 10-year anniversary of offering TAVR at OSF St. Francis in Peoria. We also offer it now in Rockford and also more recently in Urbana. And so these patients that were too high risk for open heart surgery just had to live with their symptoms and now offering this to them. And this is a procedure where they don't even go under general anesthesia. These patients are talking to the people that are performing this for them and they get up and walk around right afterwards. I mean, when you're talking about open heart surgery, that's long recovery, weeks and weeks, long time in the hospital right afterwards. These people go home the next day. Dr. Sudhir Mungi is the lead on TAVR. This is his baby, let's yes, be honest. It is. <laughs> and he has been there every step of the way. So over the past, you know, seven, eight, 10 years, what have been the biggest changes when it comes to TAVR and the care of the TAVR patients? Well, it first started with, as we mentioned before, the high-risk patients. And so that has actually changed to intermediate risk because they're finding that this really does make a big impact in people's lives. It's making people live longer and be more successful in life, you know, and going through without those symptoms. So that was one big shift. And then another one is the minimally invasive approach that they use. Instead of making a skin cut and getting into that vein, it's just a poke now. They don't even have to use a stitch anymore. And then the most recent thing is they use a brand new valve that is treated in a certain way by the manufacturer that makes sure that that valve doesn't calcify. So these valves are lasting longer and longer, which really could open the door to people outside of that high risk, that intermediate risk. You know, maybe lower risk patients who might need open heart surgery could get TAVR in the future. But Dr. Mungi does say that we're going to find out over the next few years what that's going to look like. We'll have to wait for the five-year data, 10 years data. But I think as an operator or as a consultant, when we talk to the patients, we will be a little bit more confident to tell them that, you know, there is likelihood that this valve is going to last even longer than the predecessors. So we've talked about the past and getting to this point. What about the future for heart care? What do we see on the horizon or what are the doctors at the Cardiovascular Institute talking about that really sets OSF Healthcare apart going forward with CV care? Not only the fact when it comes to TAVR specifically that, you know, we jumped on within a year after it was approved by the FDA and built a very successful program. We've done nearly 1,400 TAVRs in that 10-year period. It's it's really amazing. And um, one of the things that's really fun to talk to Dr. Mungi about is, you know, what he sees in the future. And he likes to reflect back and say, you know, 10 years ago, you know, we were just starting this. And when he looks at the thousands of patients that he touches, he is one of those physicians that will come to me and be like, oh, I have a great, I have a great patient story. Because so many people just love what he's done for them. He's completely changed their lives. If people need more information, they can go to the Cardiovascular Institute. There's all sorts of information to find out about TAVR and on the OSF Healthcare Newsroom, correct? That is correct. And there's also on the CVI page, that's the Cardiovascular Institute, there's a heart risk assessment that's free as well. And it helps you kind of get a grasp on your numbers, your risk factor, because sometimes you don't know something is wrong until you actually take a chance to, to know your numbers and really get a good look. 
Libby, thanks for the update on the CVI. Of course. Lee Batsakis from the media relations team joins us now. And Lee, you cover, you know, you're up in our metro area, so kind of Chicago, but also out in the western part of the state of Illinois where OSF Healthcare supports. So a wide range of topics that get covered over the course of a year from the areas you support. And I think one of those that you really latched onto was the whole social media thing. And it was fascinating to watch because we started seeing how social media, yeah, it really became a huge thing during the pandemic. And all of a sudden, TikTok became a thing during the pandemic. So while the popular app is mainly used for entertainment purposes, and I think everybody has learned to dance over the course of the pandemic watching TikTok, they've also started being seen for these wellness videos and people purported to be sharing wellness information. Did that get your attention looking at it? You know, it did. These alleged health hack videos grew in popularity as the app was was growing in popularity. And people were trying these health hacks at home, thinking it was, you know, safe medical advice. And some of these videos were being viewed thousands, even millions of times and really caught my attention and thought we should probably talk to our providers about why some of these might not be safe. Yeah. And I think to every single one of them, I don't think there was one TikTok video that they thought was a good idea, did they? No, not at all. So let's talk yeah. about some of the ones you've really zeroed in on. You've, you've honed it down to three over the course of the year that we're going to discuss a little bit more. Tell me about those. I did. Um, there were a whole bunch on, on TikTok throughout the course of the year, but there were three in particular that I spoke to OSF experts about from different areas across our healthcare ministry. Um, one of these was NyQuil chicken. Um, it was a hack that was people were trying at home that involved cooking chicken and NyQuil. There was one, um, you know, where people were storing avocados in water and putting them in a container in the refrigerator to consume later on. And then most recently, I spoke to an OSF provider about a trend that involved removing moles at home. Okay. All of those sound like, nope, we shouldn't be doing any of those at home or on the basis of what I'm hearing from TikTok. So let's start back with NyQuil chicken. It sounds pretty disgusting if you ask me. So tell me what NyQuil chicken is. There had been videos on TikTok of people cooking their chicken in NyQuil, uh, at least half a bottle of it, so not the recommended dose. And this was being portrayed as a hack that was safe and effective to take the medication in that form when you're sick, as opposed to the recommended way. So that sounds like a lot. You're putting it in a half a bottle of NyQuil with a piece of chicken. And I know you spoke with an advanced practice nurse who talks about what and why this is so bad. Yeah, she, you know, she talks about a few different reasons why this is probably not such a good idea. And the main concern being there's no way for certain just to know how much NyQuil was being ingested. The, you know, side effects could range from just having a bite of the chicken and, you know, possibly being okay to, you know, having liver failure and needing to head to an emergency room, especially if a child finds the chicken and consumes it um, unknowingly. It's hard to dose it. I don't know if you even could because um, it's being evaporated by the heat. So the concentration of it, um, the Tylenol in there would be way over the recommended dosage. So it'd be very bad for your liver. Um, as it cooks, it, it the fumes of the medication, that can't be good for your lungs. Um, you're breathing in that medication as it, as it boils in the pan, which uh, has got to be extremely unhealthy. 
Um, and so the, the toxicity of it is pretty dangerous. So Anne Orzachowski, you know, says it's not necessary to avoid NyQuil altogether, um, but especially if you're experiencing cold-like symptoms, but to read the labels of any over-the-counter medications before you consume them. You know, a typical dose of NyQuil is 30 milliliters, which Anne says is either, you know, two tablespoons or two liquid capsules full. Um, and it's only recommended for, you know, adults and children 12 years and older. So, you know, really read those labels and talk to your healthcare provider if you do have questions before you, you know, consume NyQuil. And especially don't cook your chicken in it. Okay, the avocado hack. Avocados are huge. They're, they have great health benefits for them. In the past, you actually did the avocado hand story about how not to cut yourself when you're cutting your avocados. Because that's the thing. We see lots of people come into our emergency departments because they've cut their hands, sliced it open, cutting an avocado. But this one is totally different, isn't it? This TikTok hack had people storing avocados in water to keep them nice and green. And while... It may have worked that they stayed green and didn't brown. It was not necessarily the safest way to be storing them to the point where in May, this challenge prompted the FDA to release a warning about the health risks associated with it for both whole and sliced avocados against storing it in water in the refrigerator. It gives bacteria a chance to harbor um, and multiply overnight or over months like some of these people are doing. Um, and it increases your risk for um, those GI infections such as listeria, salmonella, et cetera. So, yeah, that's scary. I actually, one of my daughter-in-laws, Lee, she, I saw her doing this. She handed me an avocado was in water. I went, wait a minute, you can't do that. What else, what is the huge issue here? And the warning that we need to be putting out to people. Well, the biggest issue is that the water can cause bacteria to develop and multiply. Rachel Gustafson, one of our OSF providers, you know, does say the best way to store an avocado would be just on the counter if it's not yet been opened. Keeping it in a sealed container in the refrigerator once it has been sliced open is okay, just to make sure to avoid putting it in water. Okay, now we're coming down to, and I think everybody, especially as people get older, you know, you have a mole or two or a little skin tag or something, and so now there's this TikTok hack involved removing your own moles at home. I can barely even say it. Okay, tell me about this one. So this hack was really started for cosmetic purposes. You know, people tend to want to remove those moles that are raised. And on TikTok, videos began going viral of people unsafely removing moles at home by cutting off the circulation and the blood supply to it. You know, they were using things such as rubber bands and strings, even bobby pins and other hair pins to cut off that circulation and have the mole fall off. And it was being portrayed as this is a great way to do this at home if you don't want to make a trip to the doctor's office. Okay. It sounds painful, first of all, but obviously there's reasons this should be avoided, right? Right. You know, when I spoke to Anne Orzachowski on this one, one of our OSF healthcare providers, you know, she said not only will removing a mole this way possibly lead to infection and scarring. So if you are going for that cosmetic look, that might not be the best way to do it. But also removing a mole at home means that they're not being properly checked for skin cancer. Um, and she mentioned, you know, even if down the line you did go to a dermatologist, some of those ones that were removed at home might be missed because they do have deep roots. And so the full mole wouldn't even be entirely removed and it may be harder to detect by a dermatologist or a different healthcare provider when you did go in for that visit. 
Right. So when it comes to detecting skin cancer, there are multiple factors that need to be considered. Any moles that are larger or growing or irregular in size, if uh, they have different colors to them, then um, it's important to get that checked by a provider so that they can ensure that you don't have um, a skin cancer. Um, and then you can also get them removed by a licensed professional. Okay, Lee. So over the course of the year, as you've looked at these TikTok videos and these TikTok hacks, purported hacks, I don't think we have found one that would be supported as a wellness, you should do this. Um, so what have, what have been your takeaways over the course of the year? Well, you know, the bottom line is to use TikTok for entertainment purposes. That was when the app was originated and became popular at the beginning of the pandemic. It was a very entertaining platform for people to consume content, but, you know, leave any health advice to professionals. And, you know, it's especially important to talk to your healthcare provider before trying any of these DIY health hacks when you're scrolling through social media, you know, leave those to the professionals. Tim Dittman is the newest member of the OSF Healthcare Media Relations team. So Tim, this past year has been a journey for you transitioning into healthcare media relations. Give me the quick overview of, of some of what that's been like for you. Yeah, it's been interesting and it's been very fun at the same time. I come from a journalism background and so now I'm kind of on the other side of things and I support uh, the OSF hospitals in Urbana, Danville and Alton. So it's a lot of traveling, a lot of getting to know people, getting to know our providers, our service lines. Uh, but it's been very fulfilling to watch these these great mission partners uh, do their jobs and, and support our patients and support the communities. I've, I've learned a lot about various topics, one of which we're going to talk about today. But yeah, it's been a it's been a quite the journey. It's been a fun one. I think sometimes people don't realize the expanse of OSF healthcare and how far out, you know, the entire state of Illinois pretty much, border to border, north to south, and then even up into Escanaba, Michigan. So it is a robust ministry and hospital locations and clinics and provider offices. There's a lot of them. But one of the topics you've zeroed in on recently you know, we hear all sorts of women's health stories, but there's one of those times, women who give birth and who have they been involved with the process. So it's one of the most fulfilling, but it can also be a very stressful time in women's lives, you know, bringing a child into the world and the importance of being a little flexible with the birth plan. You know, I think we hear more and more about that today, flexibility. So tell me, a little bit about what you learned over the course of doing the story about why flexibility is so important in this process. Sure. And, you know, first of all, I understand the irony of me being a childless male, but this really was uh, an interesting topic to learn about. I, I spoke with the folks at the Blessed Beginnings Birthing Center at OSF Heart of Mary in Urbana. They're a wonderful group of people, wonderful group of providers. And uh, I spoke with a patient there as well who delivered her second child uh, at our Urbana hospital. And what I learned was was basically, you know, moms, it's a good idea for them to come up with a birth plan. Okay, here, as I progress through this pregnancy and the birth and then the raising of the child immediately after, you know, here are some of the things that I would like to see happen. I would like my birth to occur this way. You know, maybe it's hospital versus home birth or just 
all of the details about bringing a child into the world. Um, but what I quickly learned is, and you know this, Shelley, is that uh, in life things can can go sideways sometimes. They, they can go different from what you plan. So you have to have flexibility if you're a new mom and the, you know, the father in there as well, the whole family, the whole support system, flexibility to say, okay, we, we want our pregnancy and our birth to go this way, but we have to be ready to adapt in case uh, we, we have to take a side road. And in the, the case of this patient that we're going to talk about, she delivered her first child via C-section at a different hospital outside of OSF. It was a bad experience. It left her in a lot of pain. And then when her second child rolled around, her birth plan was, okay, I don't want to do a C-section. Well, you can probably guess what happened. Uh, there was some uh, medical events that necessitated a C-section for that second birth at OSF Heart of Mary. And so the patient, Erin is her name, kind of had to come to terms with, okay, uh, I need to be flexible. I can do this. I trust my providers at OSF. Let's bring this child into the world as safely as possible. And that's what ended up happening. Yeah, her name is Erin Purcell from Beeman, Illinois. Um, and, and so she was able to come to terms with her C-section journey. Because you're right, a lot of women on their second you know, or subsequent childbirth experiences would like to try having the more traditional vaginal delivery. And you're right, sometimes it just doesn't happen that way. And you have to have the C-section. But if you've had not the best experience the first time, you know, there's enough unknowns going into the birthing process to think that you may not have a good situation is added stress that nobody needs. Is that some of what she was going through? Yeah, definitely some some stress, especially in the you know hours and minutes leading up to that the the birth of her second child at OSF Heart of Mary. And, and by the way, both children uh, are doing fine now. I'm told they're a happy and healthy family living in in a rural town in Illinois, so they're doing great. But yeah, definitely some stressful moments. And she kind of just had to to talk herself through and say, you know, uh, aside from the the usual stress of pregnancy, right, and in getting that baby into the world, she had to come to terms with okay okay, I had a C-section before. They're saying I need to have another one now. It's medically necessary. But I'm remembering back to that first one, and it was so traumatic. I can't bring myself to do it again. And I remember uh, a story that Aaron, the patient, told me. And Dr. Shonda Reese uh, is the provider, the OBGYN, who delivered uh, Aaron's child at OSF Heart of Mary. And Aaron recounted a story between the two of them. And she said Dr. Reese kind of took her by the hand and said, you know, if I was your best friend going through this pregnancy with you, here's the advice I would give you. And here's how I would suggest you do it. And Aaron told me that that really put her at ease because again, she's thinking, oh my gosh, C-section, it went so horribly the first time, you know, the, the child was able to come out and be healthy, but it was just so traumatic for me. Do I really want to go through it again? But the, the mission partners at OSF at that birthing center in Urbana were really able to put her at ease and uh, the pregnancy progressed. And like I mentioned, the, the child is happy and healthy now. And Aaron even has some advice for other moms to be. A birth plan is great, it's great to have, but if things start to go off of that plan, don't get too upset over it because your health and the baby's health are more important. So trust the physicians and the doctors because, or your nurses, because they see it every day. So Tim, you also spoke with Kelly Doherty, who's a certified nurse midwife at OSF Healthcare, who was on Purcell's care team. Tell us a little bit about that conversation. 
Yeah, Kelly is another wonderful member of the uh, OBGYN team and the the birthing team uh, at Heart of Mary. Uh, just a wealth of knowledge on this topic. And, you know, she sees patients and, and moms-to-be come in every day. Uh, and she was able to basically walk me through, you know, what a C-section is, literally step-by-step step how it works when the mother is in the hospital, you know, starting from them being on the operating table to getting the epidural, the spinal epidural, to actually delivering, you know, getting the baby out and then suturing up the mom, for lack of a better term. Kelly was able to talk about, uh, again, why C-sections uh, are necessary. You know, she said that providers don't like to do them. They don't like to go to them as a first option, but they have a discussion with uh, the mother and, and she emphasized that it's always an open discussion. You know, they'll never force something on a patient, on a mom-to-be. It's always an open discussion and they'll say, here's why we think this is medically necessary. For example, if the baby might be, you know, breaching instead of coming out head down, that might be a, a scenario where you might need to do a C-section or maybe there's some other fetal distress if mom has an infection, you know, all things that these providers are keeping in mind. Uh, and then back to what we were talking about earlier about the birth plan, you know, Kelly agrees with Aaron about, you know, telling moms all the time, hey, come to me with your birth plan, but at the same time, uh, you need to be flexible because things may change along the way. And Kelly Doherty is also trying to dispel some myths about C-sections as well. C-sections are not really as scary as, as you might think. It's certainly concerning because it is a major surgery. Um, and, and it should be treated as a major surgery, but um, it is also a very common surgery, and we um, are very confident that we can complete these surgeries safely, and you and your baby will be, will be well taken care of. So, Tim, do you have a greater appreciation for your mother now? <laughs> Absolutely, I do. You know, I send her a quick text like, thank you so much for caring for me when I was young. I was probably a handful. I'm still a handful now. But yeah, after seeing this and working with not only this story, but but other stories with the, the care team there at the birthing center in Urbana, I mean, everyone from the OBGYNs to the midwives to the lactation consultants, um, they're just so passionate about their job. I mean, I love stopping by and just chatting with them and just finding out, hey, what's new in your world? Uh, and it's a beautiful part of the hospital, too, that birthing center. It's a real boutique experience for these uh, moms-to-be. So, yeah, definitely a, a greater appreciation for the folks who bring these babies into the world. Well, Tim, thanks for sharing the story with us. Of course. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Health Accelerated, brought to you by OSF Healthcare. Listen and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also find links to any of our episodes on the OSF Newsroom at newsroom.osfhealthcare.org.